Thank you for tuning into this webinar, How Successful Not-for-Profits Avoid Common Accounting and Tax Pitfalls. This webinar is hosted by AGH University, presented by AGH. AGH was one of the first firms in its region to develop a practice specializing in public sector entities. It remains the leading CPA and advisory firm serving state and local governments as well as other public sector organizations. Its professionals deal exclusively with issues affecting the public sector, the kinds of issues you face each day. Today's speakers are Ellen Decker and Jandrea Blumenhurst. Ellen joined AGH in 2010. She primarily serves clients in the manufacturing, construction, and not-for-profit industries, providing tax compliance and planning services. Ellen's a member of the AICPA and the Kansas Society of CPAs. She's a long-standing member of WA Community of Young Professionals, where she is currently serving as an advisor on the W Fund Committee. Additionally, she serves as a member of the Small Business Advisory Group and the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force at the Chamber of Commerce. Jandria serves as a financial and accounting consultant for AGH's Outsourcing Services Group. She helps clients with a broad range of accounting and consulting services, including monthly financial closeout, assistance during peak workloads or special projects, training new accounting personnel, internal control reviews, and assistance with departmentalizing financials and cost allocations. Prior to joining AGH, she worked in private industry positions where she was responsible for monthly financial statements, payroll, management reports, development of internal control procedures, and monthly closing procedures. Not-for-profits are facing a myriad of challenges this year. As year-end approaches, we want to help ease your stress by providing some tips on avoiding common financial and tax compliance issues. We will provide some financial accounting tips, review important internal controls to have in place, highlight common tax compliance issues, and provide tips on preventing mistakes and protecting your exempt status. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. This has been a tough year, especially for those in the not-for-profit arena. We are hoping to provide you with some education today, some new ideas and some things to think about as the year comes to a close. Jandria will provide an overview of best practices for exempt entities, how to ensure day-to-day -day operational effectiveness, internal controls to have in place, and some key accounting reminders. I will walk through a few variances between GAAP financial statements and the Form 990, discuss how to protect your tax-exempt status, and provide a high-level overview of unrelated business income tax and the rules that pertain to charitable gambling activities. Let's start things off with our first polling question of the day. Tell us what brings you here over this election day lunch hour. Well, it looks like there is a pretty good mix of reasons for joining us today. It looks like majority of you work at a not-for-profit. Well, thank you for joining us. Jandri and I are both excited to kick off this webinar. I will hand things over to Jandria to get us started with a quick discussion on best practices. All right, thank you, Ellen. Uh, well, I thought we'd start today about discussing some best practices in these four particular areas, your board of directors, the um, employees of the organization, some internal controls, and some accounting reminders. So the board of directors is the main governing body of a not-for-profit organization. Uh, they make major decisions, they set policies, they can also hire key employees, and so it's important that you pick the right members for the board. Um, board members can also have personal liability for activities or sometimes the lack of activities of an organization. Um, 
such as if someone gets injured, um, the organization defaults on a loan, they maybe fail to pay their payroll taxes, or if there's fraud or illegal activities, um, or if there is some commingling of organizational and personal funds. So it's important that you get people that are strong um, board members. Now there is insurance to cover these types of things. So as an organization and as a board member, you should make sure you have this insurance so the board members are not personally liable. Um, getting a good board means actually recruiting members that have skills or talents that will help the board. Um, for example, I'm usually brought to the board that needs additional accounting and finance support. Um, you also will need people who have knowledge in the particular area that the not-for-profit operates in. Uh, for example, you would want someone with a musical background if you were a not-for-profit teaching music to children. Also, make sure the board members are bought into the not-for-profit purpose. Not everyone is right for every board. Um, if you have someone who is not an animal lover or doesn't care for pets in general, then like the local humane society is probably not the board to have them be on. Um, find people who have a connection, a personal connection to the purpose. Um, it will make the experience much better for both them and the organization. Um, I was once on a board where it became clear early on that most people in it were for, were for social reasons and not for the actual purpose. And they really just wanted to attend the fundraisers and get some free stuff while they were there. Um, also, the board needs to meet on a regular basis. And I would say monthly if it's a very active organization, but no less than once a quarter. The duties the board needs to fulfill are very difficult to do if they're not meeting at least that often. There also should be active committees. And um, being a finance person, I always ended up on the finance committee, surprise. Um, but there should also be other committees depending on the not-for-profit. Um, there's usually an executive committee that's made up of the president, vice president, secretary, and treasurer. Sometimes there's a fundraising committee. Um, it just kind of depends on whatever needs done to get decisions made and get things to happen. The board is also responsible for creating policies and reviewing them regularly. Um, I had one board that had quite a few policies. And so each board meeting, they reviewed anywhere from two to five policies. So every year they were able to get through all of their policies and one meeting wasn't just reading a bunch of policies and approving them. Um, such policies could be um, an investment policy, purchasing policy, personnel policy, you know, things like that. Again, these are gonna be quite varied depending on the not-for-profit purpose. Also make sure that there's a conflict of interest policy and that each board member signs. Uh, this just means that board members don't benefit finan financially from being on a board. Um, so yeah, have those signed and uh, kept. Um, other things to remember are there need to be minutes maintained for all board meetings and committee meetings. Um, executive compensation should be approved by the board. Um, the budget and financial oversight uh, will all need to go through the board and we'll get into that a little bit more later. So next is more of the day-to-day -day, um, things that go on with a not-for-profit. Um, I know a lot of not-for-profits don't have a lot of extra money to spare, but one place I'm gonna ask you not to cut back on is when hiring employees. Employees should be 
qualified and screened. Um, do background background checks and reference checks, even considered some aptitude and personality tests just to make sure that they're the right person for the job. Um, this could save a lot of time by not having to rehire in just a few weeks or a few months. And also do credit checks on anyone working with money or finances. Um, this could save a lot of headache later. Um, also, uh, be sure that there is a, a current organizational chart. Um, who reports to the board? Is it the executive director or is it all of top management? Um, and then who within the staff reports to which person at top management? Um, sometimes this can be confusing if it's not clear and spelled out. Um, I'm also going to say this again, make sure that the employees are bought into the purpose of the organization. Um, sometimes with not-for-profits, the pay is a little bit lower just because they are not-for-profit. But if the employee gets a lot of emotional satisfaction from it, many times they are willing to take a smaller salary. Um, for policies and procedures, make sure these are documented. Um, as I said, the policy should come from the board, but the procedures are the actual steps needed to carry those out. These should be accessible in case the primary person needs to be out for any reason. Um, and make sure that each procedure has a backup person that can perform that duty when they're gone. I suggest having a place on your network or having a book with, with screenshots on how to do that. Um, once I had to step into a client whose only accountant died of a stroke over the weekend and nobody had any idea what to do. And that's very stressful uh, overall because you've got the emotional side of it and then you've got the organization side as well. So. Um, just always a good thing to remember. So now I want to talk about keeping things safe and having good internal controls. Um, it is very important to maintain segregation of duties. Um, it doesn't matter how large or small the organization is, this can be done. Um, this just means separating the recording, the physical access, and the reconciling for a particular asset, which is usually cash, uh, but it can be other things if you have valuable assets. Um, I would suggest using the board of directors to enhance this. Remember, they have res ultimate responsibility. Um, have the board pre president or the treasurer get a copy of the bank statement separately from the person, staff person doing the reconciliation. Um, they should also review the bank reconciliation and approve it once it's complete. Um, they should also go through and look at all the check images and make sure that the signatures are appropriate. You should also have purchasing approvals that extend to the board for large purchases. Um, and also the board president or treasurer should sign checks over a designated amount. And uh, finally, I'm gonna do a shameless plug here and say you could always outsource some of these functions. Um, I have one client that we only do the bank reconciliation for them as they don't have segregation of duties inside the organization. Um, on others, I review the bank reconciliation and the board reviews my work. Um, and sometimes I do the bank reconciliation. So there's many ways to, to set up these uh, effective controls. Also, uh, don't forget for to have controls over technology, um, have backups maintained and store a copy offsite. Um, make sure there's security over logins. Don't leave your logins laying around, don't share them. Um, don't keep them, you know, in your desk drawer. Be sure there's firewalls and virus detection software on each computer. 
And then go have uh, all staff go through some training regarding phishing and email security. Um, even though we hear this all the time, it's good to see it on a regular basis. And then I'm gonna get into the financial statements and reviewing those. Um, financial statements need reviewed at multiple levels because each level has a different responsibility. Internally, department heads or heads of certain programs uh, they need to know how they're doing, and so they should see their own um, areas financial statements that would include where they're at related to budget. This can help them plan for uh, other things that they may need or things that they know are coming up. The executive director should review the financials for the organization as a whole with some detail in the revenues and the expenses, and again, in relation to budget. Um, you're going to hear that a lot. Um, the Finance Committee and the Board of Directors, they review them at a much higher level. Um, also, the financial statements should include reports besides just the standard balance sheet and income statement. There should be a comparison against budget, which, as I said before, is approved by the board. Um, I also think uh, some trend reports or rolling 12 months reports of the income statement can show trends that are either good or bad. Um, Analytics, I think, are always a good metric to use, such as the number of people served, the cost to serve one person, the cost of rescuing one animal, whatever it might be. Um, this can be really helpful. Um, also, consider reports on fundraising events. What is the return on the cost? If you're putting on a big event, maybe not to, right now during a pandemic, but if you're putting on a big event, what kind of return are you getting on that? Is it really worth doing? and putting all of that cost into it if you're not really getting um, a lot of bang for your buck. So I wanted to show you a couple of um, graphs that um, a board had asked for on a recent uh, not-for-profit that I worked on. Um, <clears throat> and these are really more non-financial reports even though they do have numbers. This show, graph shows donations by month for the last three years. Um, the board was getting a little anxious about the low donations and the cash balances. And um, I kept reassuring them that the donations uh, were really online with what they've done before. Um, so what I did is I had them put together this graph and you can see that over the three years, uh, the green line is the current year's donation and it is right on line with what they've had in the past. And you can see that in October, November, and December is when they get most of their cash. And so um, the money received then is what carries them through the rest of the year. So this um, made the board breathe a little bit easier knowing that this was very normal and that they should see an uptick in donations uh, here before too long. Another one that um, I think is helpful is comparing where cash reserves are into an actual in actual cash reserves in relation to what a goal is. Um, one goal that a lot of not-for-profits has is that uh, they would need reserves to meet so many days worth of expenses. And in this case, we're using 90 days. Um, that means that if not one more donation came in in the next three months, you still have enough cash to pay bills through that time. And as you can see, this organization only meets the goal part of the year when they're coming off all those year-end donations. Um, so this might be one to look at. Maybe the board needs to have a fundraiser come, you know, summertime, uh, have something 
to bring in a little bit of cash to make sure they have those reserves um, until they get to that October or November uh, time period. So now um, we'll talk about some decision-making uh, that the financials can help with. Um, the fin financials and the related reports can help the board and the employees. Um, they can look at what programs are working. Um, do they have money to continue ones that are maybe not as well-funded? Um, you can also use this information in grant applications. Um, I had a not-for-profit that needed a new medical van, and so they were able to show the increase in the number that, of people that were using that service, and uh, they were able to show, uh, show the granting agency that they needed that van to meet that need and how much it was going to cost. Um, and it was great because then they got the money to buy the van. Um, you can even use this for fundraising, such as we need $5 a person a day to support our program, or we're $1.50 short, so please send in um, to help with the shortfall. Um, so if you know the cost of something, you can have people sponsor that. You know, for $25, you can give a family a, a holiday food box. And um, so the financial statements can help with that, uh, that area. So um, talking about tax exempt status, and I know Ellen's gonna touch on this a little bit later, but an advantage of being a not-for-profit is that you can be exempt from paying taxes. And that means a lot of different kinds of taxes. Um, first of all, you're not paying income tax unless you have this UBIT that um, Ellen's gonna talk about later, but you also are, can be exempt from paying sales tax if you have a valid exemption certificate. And this can save you a significant amount of money if you think about it, it's like saving seven and a half percent or more on everything you buy. Um, so if you get an invoice with sales tax on it and you have an exempt certificate, mark that out and provide the certificate when you send in the check. Um, you may also be exempt from real estate taxes. So if you own real estate, that might go away. Um, when my church bought a building a couple of years ago, we filled out an application, which did have a pretty significant fee. Um, but we showed we were not-for-profit and they took off all the real estate taxes. So that was really great because that's going to save us over $1,000 a year. And so that is really great. You could also be exempt from paying property taxes. Um, this is going to vary a lot depending on the organization. But um, the client that bought the medical van, they can apply to get the property taxes exempted if they meet certain criteria. Um, again, every little bit helps. That will help stretch that donated dollar just a little bit farther. So what do you need to keep for tax purposes? Um, well, I'm actually going to talk first about you need to send out receipts. So if you get a receipt, if you get a donation over $250, a receipt needs sent. Um, I would suggest that you send a thank you letter for every donation, um, but it is required if it's over $250. And just because you don't pay taxes uh, doesn't mean you're exempt from filing 1099s because other people have to pay their taxes. So be sure to collect those W-9 forms and send out the required 1099s. And then watch for UBIT. Um, again, Ellen's going to expand on this later, um, but you need to account for this separately. Uh, so keep that in mind as she's talking about that, about what you might need to separate. In the payroll area, um, 501c3s are exempt from federal unemployment taxes. So again, a very small 
uh, tax, but something it can save a little bit. And then um, employers are exempt from Kansas unemployment taxes if they have fewer than four employees. So that would, um, again, help a little bit. And once again, just because you're not for profit, you don't pay sales tax, but you do need to charge sales tax. So you still have to do this in Kansas anyway. Um, so if there is something you're selling that is subject to sales tax, please include it and remit it um, as required by your state's rules. Um, so uh, this is like, even if I have a not-for-profit who sells books, um, people donate books and then the not-for-profit sells them, they have to charge sales tax on that. So keep that in mind. That also means signing up with your state um, and getting a sales tax an account for paying the sales taxes. So this brings us to polling question number two. What is a good best practice for not-for-profit board of directors? Holding regular meetings no less than once a quarter, having active committees, creating board policies and reviewing them annually, or all of the above? You know, we've spent our time so far talking about best practices and things to consider from the accounting side of a not-for-profit, but one of the reasons good accounting records are needed is for preparation of the tax return. Um, that's true in any organization or company. Um, the process is so much easier for both the not-for-profit staff and the accounting firm preparing the return if the accounting records are in good order and things are already available. So next, Ellen is going to talk about some of the tax aspects. Um, well, uh, it looks like most of you got the right answer. It is D, all of the above. Um, these are all good practices to put in place um, for not-for-profit. So now I'm going to turn it over to Ellen. <clears throat> Thank you, Jandria. You provided lots of good advice and tips for our listeners. As we transition our discussion to more tax-related topics, I wanted to start with a comparison of GAAP financial statements to the IRS Form 990 and highlight some common variances that you might see. Donated services are reported on GAAP financials as an in and out. They are reflected as a contribution and a corresponding expense. However, on the tax side, donated services are excluded from reporting entirely. For entities with audited financial statements, donated services will be reported as a reconciling item on Schedule D of the Form 990. This schedule provides a reconciliation between audited financial statements and the tax forms. This reconciliation is on page four of the Schedule D. Unrealized gains and losses are reported on the Statement of Activities for GAAP, but they are excluded from reporting for tax. Only realized gains and losses are included on the Forms 990. Fundraising activity can create a presentation variance between the GAAP financials and the Form 990 simply due to its placement on the forms. Fundraising expenses are netted with fundraising revenue on the Form 990 Statement of Revenue versus being reported with the other expenses. Another oddity that only affects fiscal year filers is the reporting of compensation. Compensation is reported on a calendar year basis on Part 7 of the Form 990 for officers, et cetera, whereas it is reported on a fiscal year basis on the Part 9 Statement of Functional Expenses. 
this is not a variance from GAP, but it does create confusion sometimes. And I, I think it's really worth mentioning. Being recognized as a tax exempt entity under section 501c3 is a privilege that comes with many benefits. In order to continue to receive those benefits, however, the IRS has certain rules and expectations that you must adhere to. First, you need to fulfill your annual reporting obligation by either filing the required forms on your own or by seeking outside assistance. We will go through this requirement in more detail here shortly. Make sure that you are operating within your stated exempt purpose. An organization must pursue the exempt activities it outlined in its IRS application for exemption. If the entity needs to deviate from its original purpose, it must inform the IRS. Monitor and limit unrelated business income, which is generated from activities not substantially related to the organization's exempt purpose. Earning too much UBI can jeopardize your status. We will delve deeper into UBI later in the webinar. Avoid any political activity. 501c3 organizations are not allowed to participate in any political campaign. This is a very fitting reminder today. Keep lobbying activity to a minimum. Some is allowed, but it must remain insubstantial. Ensure that the organization's activities do not substantially serve the private interests or the benefit of any individual or organization. Do not allow the income or the assets to benefit insiders such as officers, board members, directors, etc. The most common reason that entities lose their exempt status is simply from not filing their required information returns with the IRS. Organizations will automatically lose their exempt status if they fail to file the required information returns for three consecutive years. On the slide, I have included a chart that illustrates, in general, the required informational filings based on the status of the not-for-profit entity for that tax year. Keep in mind that some entity types follow specific guidelines not included above. For example, Section 509A3, which is a supporting organization, is typically not allowed to file a Form 990-N even if it falls within the financial parameters on the slide. It is important to file the required form by the original due date, which is the 15th day of the fifth month following the close of the tax year. If you are not able to file the Form 990, Form 990-EZ, or Form 990-PF by the original due date, you can file a request for extension, which gives you an additional six months to complete the tax forms. The Form 990-N does not have an extension or a late filing penalty. However, the IRS will issue a reminder notice to the last known address if the Form 990-N is not filed timely as required. It can only be filed electronically via the IRS website as there is no paper form available. All filers must complete a one-time registration in order to file the 990-N e-postcard. Completing the 990-N is a rather simple process that requires only a few pieces of basic information, including the employer identification number, so make sure you have that handy if you have to file this form. Keep in mind that unless there is another unprecedented event, 
the tax filings for exempt entities will follow their normal due date schedule next year. The reprieve until July 15th is not cur currently available in 2021. As I mentioned before, it is important to file the required annual forms by the original due date or request an automatic six month extension. If you do not comply, the late filing penalty is rather steep. For most entities, a penalty of $20 per day will be assessed for each day the return is late. The penalty is maxed out at $10,500 or 5% of gross receipts, whichever is lower for the tax year. For an organization that has gross receipts of over $1,067,000 for the year, the penalty is increased to $105 per day, up to a maximum of 53 grand. If you are assessed a penalty, you may be able to get it removed by submitting a reasonable cause penalty abatement letter. We have had some success with this process, even with some large penalty assessments. It is definitely worth a shot, so take the time to complete the request for abatement before getting your checkbook out. The failure to file penalty also applies if the return is filed incomplete or incorrect. We will go through a few examples of what could cause a return to be considered incomplete. The IRS considers an incomplete return as a return that was not filed. So it is subject to the same penalties for late filing. I have listed some of the most common reasons the IRS would consider a Form 990 incomplete. If you are self-preparing the forms, please make sure you do not make the following mistakes. Forgetting to complete and file Schedule A, Schedule B, or Schedule O as applicable. Schedule A is required for all 501c3 entities to report public charity status and public support. Schedule B is generally required to report contributions from any one contributor totaling $5,000 or more. If Schedule B does not happen to apply for the tax year, then on part four of the 990, line two must be answered no to forego having to include this schedule. Schedule O is an open schedule required for all entities. It provides a narrative information for the IRS. The most common unanswered items from part four of the Form 990, which are line 11B and line 19, require information to be completed on Schedule O. So at the very least, Schedule O should contain responses for these two line items. Remember that the Form 990 is a public document. It is a chance to put your best foot forward to the public and to the IRS. A well-prepared, complete, and accurate return can help to minimize the attention you receive from the IRS. Take the time to review drafts of the forms each year before filing and make sure pages one and two align with the same narrative that you present on your website or other communications. Let's take a moment here to tackle our third polling question of the day. What activity could cause an entity to lose its federal tax exempt status? Filing the required Form 990-EZ a few months late, participating in a political campaign on behalf of a candidate, operating exclusively under its stated exempt purpose, or none of the above. 
it looks like we're all on the same page here. The correct answer is B. Uh, participating in a political campaign is a prohibited activity that could land you in hot water with the IRS. Although it is not a good idea to complete your tax filings late, one late filing will not cause you to lose your exemption. Let's move on to our next topic of the day that causes many exempt organizations to seek outside guidance due to its complexity. Unrelated business income tax came into law in 1950 to present to prevent tax-exempt organizations from unfairly competing with for-profit businesses. Determining whether or not income qualifies as UBI is based on how the money is earned, not how the money is used by the entity. An activity is generally determined to be an unrelated business if it meets the three-part test. First, it is a trade or business. A trader business is conducted in a commercial manner, in competition with other businesses, and includes furnishing goods or performing services for the purpose of producing income. Second, it is regularly carried on. This one is a bit tricky. If the activity is carried on at a similar frequency to comparable commercial activities, it would fall into this category. Intermittent or one-off activities generally do not meet this test, but seasonal activities could. And third, it is not substantially related to furthering the exempt purpose of the organization. Does the activity itself contribute importantly to pursuing the exempt purpose, or does it just generate income to fund the entity's operations? There is no defined percentage for this evaluation. It is very much based on specific facts and circumstances. Not-for-profits are permitted to engage in some income-producing activity that is unrelated to their exempt purpose. Not-for-profit entities could lose their exemption if unrelated business income accounts for a significant portion of the total income earned. However, again, there is no defined threshold for what percentage qualifies as significant in the eyes of the IRS. The specific facts and circumstances of your UBIT activity will have to be evaluated. There are defined exceptions and activities that are excluded from the UBI rules. For example, interest, dividends, royalties are excluded from UBIT. Selling donated merchandise for example, through a thrift shop, is exempted from UBIT as well. Certain bingo games are not considered UBIT. Trader businesses that are the result of volunteer labor, labor for example, a bake sale, may meet this exception as well. Identifying UBIT can be difficult, especially if your not-for-profit has a wide array of activities. It is a good best practice to regularly evaluate if your business activity should be subject to UBIT and to consider the three-part test prior to establishing any new endeavors. Here is a list with activities that could result in UBIT. Although this list is not all-inclusive, it is a good starting point. Keep in mind that what is UBIT for one entity may not necessarily be UBIT for another entity depending on their stated exempt purpose. 
A couple of quick examples of UBIT generating activities would be commercial advertising and rental income from debt financed property. Let's move on to our last topic of the day. It is one activity that could land you in hot water if you don't abide by the rules. That activity is charitable gaming. Gaming activities are a popular form of fundraising that can draw really big crowds. However, it comes with specific rules and reporting requirements that must be followed. Charitable gaming activities are permitted in most states, but will likely require state and or local registration for a license or permit prior to the event taking place. Kansas requires a gaming license for bingo, for instant bingo, and also for raffles where the gross receipts are over $25,000. So if you have a small raffle at an event, that will likely not require registration with the state. Make sure you plan ahead and complete the appropriate applications with the state of Kansas at least a few weeks in advance. You can complete a paper application found on the ksrevenue.org website, or you can navigate to the KDOR Customer Service Center and apply entirely online. Silent and live auctions are actually not considered gaming activities by the IRS. Um, I wanted to point that out because it's a question that comes up quite frequently. If you are planning to hold a raffle, a good reminder is that in addition to obtaining a license, if necessary, you may want to have an attorney draft up raffle rules to put in place as well. Now, from a reporting perspective, I wanted to run through a few compliance reminders. First, it is important to separately track the income and expenses from all gaming activities. And as Jandria mentioned earlier, it's important to do that for any uh, UBIT activity as well. A good suggestion is to use separate volunteers and a separate cash box for gaming activities if it is part of a larger event. This will help ensure proper reporting on the Forms 990 because if more than $15,000 of gross income is earned from gaming, supplemental information will need to be completed on Schedule G. Another important compliance reminder is that cash and non-cash prizes awarded to participants may require filing a form W-2G and may also require taxes to be withheld. Generally, the form W-2G needs to be filed for a raffle win in excess of $600 and a bingo prize in excess of $1,200. As I mentioned before, most gambling activities require registration for a permit or license. Conducting the activity without a required license or permit could result in unrelated business income and a subsequent tax liability because you are carrying out an illegal activity. The amounts paid by participants to partake in gaming activities is non-deductible for tax purposes. So be sure to disclose that as necessary on the materials that you hand out to participants. My last reminder here is that there are multiple disclosure questions on the Forms 990 regarding gambling activity. So be sure to discuss this with your tax advisor. That brings us to our fourth and final polling question in today's webinar. In the state of Kansas, a charitable gaming license is required for raffles 
where the gross receipts are over what threshold? or $50,000. Most of you got the correct answer. The correct answer is $25,000. So small raffles can be hosted without a gaming license in the state of Kansas. Now I'll pass things over to Jandria to to wrap us up for the day. All right, thanks Ellen. Um, as we near today, at the end of today's webinar, I want to go over a few closing reminders in relation to some of the topics that Ellen and I covered today. Um, create board policies and procedures and review them annually. Have quality hiring practices in place. Um, be sure to evaluate current segregation of duties and resolve any deficiencies. Make sure you regularly review month end financials. Also regularly review requirements for maintaining tax exempt status and ensure that you're timely filing all required forms. And last, evaluate current and new business activities for UBIT exposure and required reporting. So if you want to stay advised on new information and legislative changes, feel free to sign up on our website to receive our alerts or reach out to your advisor to learn about updates. Um, well, we've had a busy lunch hour and we've enjoyed spending it with you. At this I time, think. we want to open the discussion up for questions you may have. If you have a specific question or we don't have time to address your question on the air, we'd be happy to discuss them with you later. Uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I will hand things over to Mike to wrap us up. So we had several questions come in. I'll just start with the first one, which was, I think for Jandria, what is the best way to account for UBIT in our accounting records? What I've usually suggested, there's a couple of things. Um, it may be clear just by the way that your chart of accounts is set up in your accounting records. And so your tax preparer may be able to see it from there. But if it's an entire department, um, that's actually what I would do is set up uh, a department for that activity. So it's easy to run a report just for that department and uh, your tax advisor then can take that information and use it for the tax return. All right, thank you. This one's for January as well. It came in at the early part. What financial reports should go to the board? It seems like every time there's a change in the board, I have to do new reports. Um, yeah, I get that all the time too. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's really nothing that's required. It's what the board needs in order to make the decisions that they need to make. So yes, every time the board change, that may change because different people have different things that they want to see. Um, as a just basically a balance sheet income statement and a trend report and a financial statement, income statement compared to budget is what I start with. And then I usually let my boards know to just let me know if they want something else, and then I just continue to modify it. So it's not a static thing. It does change from time to time. Gotcha. Thank you. And I think we do have a on-demand webinar that talks about um, financial statements 101. That might also be of interest to the person who asked that question as well. Ellen, the next question is for you. We've had to report UBIT from investments in the past. How do we prevent that? Uh, well, the first step is really to talk to your broker. Uh, you can ask that your funds not be invested in UBIT generating activities. 
it's a good idea to set parameters within your investment strategy. If you had one, I know Jandria mentioned earlier in the webinar that um, having an investment policy is a good idea. And this is one situation where that comes into play. If you don't happen to have a broker, um, then whoever is in charge of your financial finance investment decisions, um, they, they need to know what they should and should not be investing the money in uh, to prevent that UBIT uh, UBIT income coming through. Cool. And the next question was, we sell advertising occasionally in material for a gala fundraiser. Would this be considered UBIT? Uh, it's a great question. I would say likely no. Uh, assuming it's a one-time piece of material for a one-off event, not regularly carried on, those revenue streams are definitely something you should evaluate periodically and document your reason for including or excluding them from UBIT. But in this situation, I would say likely not. All right. And then the last question we had come in, uh, came in during the closing reminders. I think it's for both of you, actually. At a high level, what entails a regular regular review of month-end financials and what entails a regular review for maintaining tax-exempt status? From a tax perspective, I would say, you know, Set up reminders, make sure that you're getting your filings completed. I would say regularly review what income generating activities you're participating in. Uh, make sure that you understand the ramifications of those activities or if you happen to be getting into any new activities. Also, you need to evaluate, and Jandre may have some comments on this, you need to evaluate <coughs> uh, you know, board relationships and make sure that there's nothing um, no problems that are presenting themselves in terms of uh, contracts that are being awarded to people with relationships with board members, um, make sure that officers' compensation is in line. Um, there are periodic things that you can do, but for the most part, I would say, make sure that you have reminders of the filing requirements that you need to make each year and make sure that you're consistently evaluating the income generating activities that you're participating in. Jandria, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think the only thing that I really thought of when I heard the question was just regarding the financial statements getting reviewed regularly. Um, even if a board is not meeting more than once a quarter, um, I still think it's important that financial statements go out on a monthly basis because um, those can be reviewed and then monthly and then discussed quarterly or if there's a, a problem or something like that, um, it can be discussed within like a finance committee. Um, that's what I have one not-for-profit do is the financials go to the finance committee every month and then they go to the board, I think, once a quarter, the full board. So that's what I would do it. All right. Thank you both for answering that question. It looks like that's all that we've had come in. I'd like to thank everybody for making time to join us today. I'd like to thank Ellen and Jandria for spending their lunchtime with us as well. Again, swing by the AJHUniversity.com uh, website, check out our other upcoming webinars. And again, we will get CPA certificates out to everyone today who qualified for attendance. So thank you again for attending. Hope to see you at a future webinar.